Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 210 for August 20th, 2009, listener feedback number 73. Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. The safe way to access your PC remotely that's as secure as online banking. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomypc.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, very important, your privacy, and all that stuff. Steve Gibson is here, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term, created the first anti-spyware tool. He's a security researcher and expert engineer, the creator of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, and the owner of GRC.com, which is a great website full of wonderful tools. And it's so great to see him in our fifth year now of security. Now, at some point, I will stop. I won't have to introduce you anymore. I'll just say, you know, I wonder when that will be. You know, Steve. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> it's good to say it in case there's people, new people coming along. Well, and we do know. Yes, we know. I, I know from the feedback that there are people who are discovering the podcast and they say, oh, yeah, this is the first one I listened to. Or I just heard, you know, I've, I've, I discovered you last month because my boss turn me on to it or something and I owe him big time kind of thing. So there, you know, there are people who, as you say, have not been here for all prior 209 times you've said that. Well, and that's really good because if we weren't growing, we would be shrinking because, you know, there is some attrition. There's attrition. Yep. So uh, it's important that we get new listeners. In fact, if you blood. Uh, if you like new the show, blood. tell your boss, tell your employees, spread the word, uh, let people know they can hear the show. They can watch it live. We do it live. Uh, every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on live.twit.tv. So Actually, that's right now, Leo. Oh, that's my gosh. We better, that, we better get going. That's what we're doing. <laughs> we release the show on Thursdays. Hello. Uh, when we have a Q&A today, right? We do. Yeah. Some great questions from our audience and Steve's answers. Well, before we get to our uh, questions and answers, do you have any uh, updates? Oh, we got a bunch of security news and some errata. You betcha. Um, the big news, probably, I think this because it's been a relatively quiet week. Um, however, it was recently revealed that all Linux kernels based on the 2.4 and 2.6 series since 2001. So over the last eight years are vulnerable to a really bad privilege escalation attack. Um, that it basically it allows any anyone with restricted rights to get root on a Linux machine. Um, it turns out that there that it was discovered there were null pointer references in in some rarely used protocol initialization structures um, in the kernel and. An exploit is available and it is being used. That is, I mean, it's it's out there. It's out there. Uh, Debian has updated immediately. Uh, Ubuntu has done the same. There's nothing yet for Red Hat Enterprise, 
but they have published a workaround. So I just wanted to let all of our Linux users know that it's definitely time to, to based on what, what flavor of Linux you're using, check in with, you know, headquarters and see if they've got yet a fix for this. Um, there's, I guess there's a whole bunch of different uh, uh, Ubuntu flavors also, ex-Ubuntu and all kinds of crazy prefixes on, on the front of that. Um, and they've responded. So everyone is scrambling. I mean, this is just like today and yesterday this is happening when we're recording this on, on August 18th. This is huge. It's, or the 19th. Yeah, yeah it is big. Um, so it's, it's, from what I can tell, it's not a remote exploit. That is, oh. it, it's, not, it's not like a, a protocol port. It's a You have to have local, physical access. Yes. Oh, but that's it, a but relief. It, yes, yes, yes. So, so, it's, so it's, it's a way of writing code which, which uses not common protocols. For example, Apple Talk, IPX, the old... Mm, the old um, that's the network protocol. Network protocol, exactly. Yeah. IRDA, the, the, um, the IR protocol, X.25, Bluetooth, um, a version of INET6, the IPv6 protocol, and ISDN. So there, it turns out that when you create a socket in, in Unix or Linux, you specify the protocol the socket will have. Um, the protocol that you're going to use, for example, where you would typically use IP protocol, IPv4 for, for standard IP communications. That protocol then defines which operations can be performed on the socket. And if the operation is not defined for the protocol, there sh- you should have a, it pointing to a not implemented um, r- procedure, basically, so that if you try to to execute that procedure, it just returns an error saying this this particular operation is not implemented on this protocol. It turns out that those are not those not implemented pointers are sometimes not filled in, and this has been the case for eight years. And somebody really? for eight years, for eight years. And so, so somebody, so there is now an exploit that it, that allows elevation to root. That is anybody can get root on any Linux that is, and they're all, I guess the, you know, it's based on the series 2.4 and 2.6. They all use the same kernels. Yeah, exactly. So for eight years, it's been possible to do this. It was Holy just discovered. Mackerel. And published, so you know there's no need to have a fancy password to log in as root. Anyone can get root on your Linux machine, so it's something I imagine lots of Linux people will want to fix. But that's always less of a risk if you need physical access. It's not like they can yes, hack in from outside. Absolutely. It's so, not, for instance, I'd be worried about my servers, which are all running Ubuntu, but you'd have to be at the network center and you yes, have to get in this, there. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is it's possible. It's possible to write code which says it creates a socket. It says, okay, I want to use Bluetooth and then to execute a to execute a deliberately non-supported function against that Bluetooth protocol defined socket, which will then, you know, causes problems because you, you instead of being returned oh, this is not implemented on this socket, the return you get is something that allows you then to leverage this into a privilege, 
uh, escalation and you're able to get root privileges. Right. Of course, we will update this. But 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 the fact is that uh, it's it's less of a issue. Yes. It, yeah. Oh, I mean, if this were a remote exploit, it'd be oh, <laughs> it would be the end of the world. Yeah. No kidding. That I would mean, be really bad. anybody could take over any server. I mean, it'd be awful. Yeah. Thank yeah, goodness. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, also, we we spoke last week about the uh, UC Berkeley researchers who who got a lot of attention for their. Um, there's their discovery, their research, which which indicated that more than half of the Internet's top websites were no longer relying on browser cookies to maintain state, but were using flash cookies, which are a lot less well known than browser cookies for which there's no easy button to push there's no ui built into to you know the flash player just sort of an embedded thing whereas browser you the user interface on the browser allows us to say oh i don't want to i want to disallow third-party cookies or i want to you know treat them as session cookies and so forth um uh it turns out that a major provider of of web analytics a company called quantcast had been for who knows how long one of the services they were offering to their clients, Hulu being one that was mentioned, was to reinstate browser cookies that the user de- deliberately deleted Uh-oh. by using the flash cookies. Flash and we talked thing. about yeah. this a couple times. Yeah. You know, the idea being that the user says, you know, I want this to be a session cookie. I don't want you to remember me. Well, Quantcast said, oh, guess what? As a service, since you know, we're, we, we, we've got code running on the website, um, we'll use Flash cookies, which are stickier, to, to basically respawn any browser cookies that are deleted. So the problem with that, of course, is that, we, as we know, and I'm, I'm annoyed by this because this is one of those things that unfortunately is opt-out that should be opt-in, you know, the whole cookie deal. But... All browsers still have third-party cookies enabled by default, which which enables tracking, as we've described. But you know, for users to deliberately disable them, that would imply user intent. That is, they didn't de- disable them by def- by mistake. They weren't disabled by default. Someone had to say, "I know what I'm doing. I don't want to be tracked." And so, for a company to come back and reinstate those. Where you know basically overriding the wishes of the owner who's visiting the website seems really bad. Well, oh the good yeah. News is oh yeah. They the day after this report came out, they stopped it. Good. So they, I think, they recognized preemptively that they were about to be in a world of hurt because you know people like us would be saying this company is doing this and it's really bad. So. So they uh, they they formally said, "Hey, uh, we're not going to do that anymore." People who delete their cookies are ex- expressing their intent, so we're going to honor that intent. Good. good. It's like, well, good. Um, I don't know if you saw the story about Palm getting some heat about about the pre tracking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's phoning home. Yeah, even and and this is what surprised people. You know, arguably down on the fine print. You know, it may say that that's okay, but you know, for, for our listeners who haven't heard, the you know Palm Pre turns out to be 
providing geolocation information about all pre-phones, even when you're not using location-based services, which was really the gotcha. It's not that, you know, you, you, you could imagine that, you know, that the phone is is providing benefits based on GPS and, and you know, you know, standard state-of-the-art geolocation services. The problem is the pre is sending back your location to to the mothership continuously, whether you're using geolocation or not. And and it did bring up though a secondary aspect, which is and I guess this is maybe not such a big deal, but for example, even the Apple iPhone third-party apps are able to query the iPhone for its location and and nothing prevents them from leaking that information back out to wherever they want to. The, the, the iPhone does say this third-party app wants to know your location, okay or not. So right. you're you're queried every single time, even if you say yes. The next time you launch the app, it will ask you okay, again. Okay, so so at the OS where the app is trying to say where is the phone, right? That brings up a a dialogue that the app is unable to interfere with or suppress. Apparently, so I mean, there may be some bug, but permission. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You have to give it explicit permission each and every time. Right. Um, now, it is an interesting point, and somebody made this point when I talked about this on the radio show, that the, the phone company knows where you are. It has all that information. Um, it may not have it as granularly because it's by uh, cell site. By cell tower, as yes. As opposed to, you know, the longitude and latitude, which is accurate to a few meters. Uh, but we kind of know that, and we accept that with a phone company for the for for Palm to know that is a little much. And Palm, by the way, while acknowledging it and apologizing, didn't say they were going to stop. No, they said that's part of what's what the we do does. It makes yeah. it easier for you. Yeah, in fact, it, it, it's funny. Uh, you were talking about the 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 comment raised about how cell cell companies know where you are. I mean, that's now that that's in the common culture enough so that. When we see, you know, we're, we're watching TV or a movie or something and somebody's on the cell phone, it's like, OK, hang up, hang up, you know, take the battery out. You know, don't you know they're going to track you? Right. I mean, it's just we, know we all that. know that. Now. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we don't assume that the handset manufacturer is keeping track of that. Yeah. Wow. And and you have to wonder why. I mean, and, and they say, oh, it's part of all the value add. It's, yeah. you know, we're we're going to provide you services that are enhanced because. If we know where you are, we can tell you where to, how, you know, where the nearest pizza is or something. I mean, okay, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Um, Real networks. We talked about this about a year ago. Has been fighting and continually losing their battle for their product called Real DVD. Real DVD is a technology which allows people to copy DVDs to their computers. It's supposed to make it easier for them to watch DVDs. They're not able to duplicate them, and they are still encrypted. But, you know, Real Networks has, content, has, has contended that, hey, this is not a breach of, of anyone's copyright because it's still only viewable on the machine to which it's been copied. And how is that different than putting the disc into the, the machine's own DVD player and running, you know, a built-in dvd um you know movie player app unfortunately paramount sony universal and disney all disagree um a 
temporary injunction has just been turned into a preliminary injunction, strengthening it and essentially preventing real from from continuing to sell. Well, they have been already prevented, but I mean, this strengthens it to the point where the next step now is to go to trial. Um, so I just wanted to move us forward in this saga. It's apparently real in order to do this, did sign licensing agreements um, in order to access the DVD decrypto technology. So they're a, a licensee, a formal licensee of that, as you'd expect. And the argument is, well, you're breaching your license by doing this. You are, you are decrypting the DVD for, uh, in a way that, you know, we're not happy with. And so real is having to defend themselves. Yeah. Uh, motion picture industry, as usual, not too happy with this kind of thing. With any kind of use that they don't have complete control over. They, they essentially say you don't have the right to back it up. Right. You can't right. even back it up. And um, in another little bit of uh, weird randomness, Twitter was found to be used controlling a botnet. Not surprisingly, a botnet was following a Twitter account and and so somebody was using Twitter, literally, you know, sending tweets to Twitter and all of his bots were following him. And it's how he was. He, that's how he that was his command and control channel for the botnet. This was discovered uh, after the not the, the denial of service attack problems that we talked about last week. Um, a researcher looking closely realized there was some strange uh, traffic on one channel, and they they closed the account. And apparently, the same person was using uh, Jaiku prior to that. And it turns out that increasingly, botnets are finding new and sort of unique ways of of phoning home and and staying in touch with their owners. One that I thought was particularly interesting is that. The, the the botnet clients, the bots themselves, will issue strange search queries, which would normally not turn up anything. But the owner of the botnet fleet knows what search queries his bots are going to issue. And so he can then create a website, which the search engines will find and index, and then the weird queries result in hits against that site that allow the bots to find code to update themselves. So it, it just seems odd that you would do that in a public place like Twitter. I mean, it's so much easier just to have a, a, a IRC server secretly running Twitter. It's so obvious, you know? Yeah. Exactly. It was discovered I mean, exactly, right exactly away because you know, it's exactly the sort of little messages that, that are being broadcast by Twitter. Is that? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't very inspired and it didn't last very long. They yeah, saw it. Yeah. They closed it down. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I uh, like dumb, dumb uh, hackers like that. <laughs> Give me more of them. <laughs> we wish we wish everyone yeah, was, yeah. was a little slow. Yeah, Those are the ones I want. <laughs> and next week's topic is going to be a nice, deep, serious, techie, you know, back to security now style, uh, a detailed look at hacking a voting machine, oh, how boy. it's done. Because um, at the Usenix 09 e-voting workshop, some researchers from a handful of universities revealed the, their research 
into how what was believed to be one of the least hackable e-voting machines, which is widely used in the U.S., um, how they managed to take it over. And it's it's really interesting because um, it's not based on Linux or Windows or any of these like, you know, big OSs that would immediately make me just sort of sigh and wonder why, you know, why this approach was taken. They, it, the machine runs on an, a Z80 chip and with a very small amount of code. And what's really interesting is that it's, it's a so-called Harvard architecture as, as, opposed, as opposed to the, the traditional architecture where instructions and data are all mixed together. And we understand the danger of that because everything that we're hearing is, is how data is being misunderstood as instructions and so data is being executed well the the developers of this said oh not a problem we're going to create a really tight small beautiful little e-voting machine and they did where where the hardware itself will prevent data from being executed that is rom the, the code will be in rom and of course data will be in ram and it will be impossible for the chip to execute commands out of RAM. It can only execute the ROM that we provide. And these guys found a, while, a way around that such that it is possible to change the outcome of voting. Wow. So we're going to have fun next week with looking at exactly how that works. Um, in Errata, um, I referred to incorrectly and improperly uh, Dyn DNS as as something that I mean I was wrong in thinking that it was sort of a hobbyist not to take seriously DNS service. You know, um, I've run across it because it's possible, for example, to set up a Dyn DNS account and have your your residential router stay synchronized so that you're able to create a domain name, a Dyn DNS domain name that will always point to the IP of your router to allow you to find it if your ISP using DHCP should assign your router a different IP. Because as we know, um, while DHCP assigned IPs are relatively static, they're not absolutely fixed. So it's necessary to have some sort of a, of, of a system that will be able to track the IP if it changes. Um, and I, I, I was, I was, we were talking about Twitter and the fact that they use Dyn DNS. And I said, Oh my goodness, you know, I mean, get a real DNS service. Well, to oh. your credit, you, 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 you said, I read this, I'd heard this. You didn't say, I know this for a fact. I mean, right. Well, it turns out that Dyn DNS has grown up a lot since I last saw them and they have an enterprise class service, which is, is robust and strong and serious and solid and so the fact that Twitter is using that in no way weakens Twitter. And in fact, this was not an attack on DNS. The reason what I read was that there was an increase in traffic to Dyn DNS due to the attack. But I mean, that also follows because, because remember that the first thing that happens when you do a lookup of anything on the net is you've got to get the IP address. Right. So you, so if, if a whole bunch of clients were, as we now believe, essentially clicking on links on Twitter blogs, then 
there would all those clients would be referred, you know, would have their DNS lookups performed by their DNS server that would query Dyn DNS to get the current IP of Twitter. But it's not, it's not, you know, literally dynamic DNS because there is a whole other enterprise class service, you know, big iron DNS, which the same folks offer who offer the, the, um, the, the home router version uh, for, you know, with a very different targeted audience. Excellent. Well, so our apologies. We'll that correct clear. that. Yeah. Um, I keep hearing people in our feedback telling us they love our minor uh, divergences from security. One, of course, is our favorite is sci-fi. And so I have to just say that I loved <laughs> Peter Jackson's District 9. Yeah. Now, don't no spoilers because uh, oh, I'm not spoiling. Yeah, because oh, apparently it's best to know as little as possible before going in to see this movie. It is a spectacular piece of work. Yeah. So I wanted to show you know, any of our listeners who are sci fi people. I just wanted to say District nine is really good. I mean, in, in a very different way. I mean, I, I would say it blows the most recent Star Trek movie away. Wow. Which I also and that loved. was an excellent movie. Yeah, but it it was okay, yes. It was an excellent movie. I loved it. I'm glad we're going to have more Star Trek movies, but District 9 is in a class by itself. Yeah. I mean, it is it is fantastic science fiction. I, so. I I heard people say their reaction to this was the same as when they saw The Matrix the first time. It was just like yeah, I can't it, wait to it, see it. it. It was, I mean, I, I went with a couple of friends and we were just like turning and looking at each other with our mouths hanging open during the movie. It was like, my God, this is good. It was yeah. just, it was spectacular. I can't wait. Um, I also picked up a comment. I don't remember now why, but I was, I was watching um, uh, you, Leo, on the weekend uh, on your tech guy show um, and a caller was com- was talking about their drive clicking. Yes. And, you know, the drive was not, no longer working and it was clicking. And I, I hear that enough that I just wanted to address that briefly. Um, and this is not, you know, a pro spinrite story. This is unfortunately something that's not spinrite nor anything else except serious, serious dr- um, drive repair can can fix. That clicking is... What the drive does when it is arguably at or past life, unfortunately, oh. the the it is the 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 drive will put the heads out on the surface and try to obtain a servo lock, which means it's looking for the the special non-data servoing information, which is is now stored periodically around the track it's if, if you imagine a if, if you imagine two different signals which are out of phase you know like a, a, a sine wave signal where from left to right that sine wave diminishes in strength and then there's another sine wave that's 180 degrees out of phase meaning that that it's it's Peaks and valleys are the reverse of the first one, and its strength increases from left to right. So, sort of, so that sort of creates almost sort of a, 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 a V shape. And imagine that the head running down the middle 
is is now receiving both sine waves, the in phase and the out of phase one. Well, is as it drifts off track, the amp the the, the signal it gets, which is the composite of both, will will start to change, and it can tell by whether by which way the phase changes, which direction it's off. And so by moving back to the center and like nulling out these two competing sine waves, it's able to stay on track. Well, that's, that, that's a good visualization of, of how servoing works on contemporary drives. And so those little servo bursts, as they're called, occur periodically, and they give the drive the, the, the drive servoing technology, the head positioning technology, periodic updates on where it is on, as, it, as it moves along the track. Well, that's the, the drive's ability to lock on to this servo information is, is like it's the first thing it does when it puts the heads out. If, it, if, it, if it's unable to acquire that servo information, it'll wait a bit and trying, moving the heads around, looking for it. And if it can't, it retracts the heads in what's called a recalibrate operation and puts them out again. That's the click you hear. So that clicking is the drive's inability, essentially, to, to get itself going. So, so, so what happens is when you power the drive up, the, the, the platters spin up to speed, which causes the heads to begin fl- flying over the surface. And once the, the um, system sees that the platters are up to speed, it then sends the heads out in order to, uh, to go to the, the first cylinder and obtain their servo lock. If they can't, it retracts the heads, waits a little bit, and just tries again. There's nothing else it can do. And so what you hear is a click-a-dick, you know, click-a-dick, click-a-dick, click-a-dick. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it's not until the drive achieves that servo lock that it then lights up the API. That is, it lights up the interface and says, I'm online. So essentially the drive is offline. It's not, it isn't paying attention to its interface. There's nothing any software can do. There's nothing anything anyone can do. Sometimes this is where you put the drive in the refrigerator because, you know, that's an old school approach. But I mean, you're, you're literally... You don't have many many boots left of this uh, on a drive that's doing that. Well, now let's distinguish that between a drive that's having trouble reading a sector and trying over and over again. That right. sounds a little bit like a clickety two. Um, that's like a. Eh, 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 eh. Um, yes, it there can be that, and in fact, you know, uh, Spinrite will generate that because one of the things that Spinrite does is it moves off in in either direction to random distances. And then comes back at the sector, hoping to get a slightly different head positioning in, it, it, to allow it to obtain a, a good read on the sector. Because, you know, all of this, there's like there's a little bit of slop in all of this. There's, you know, the drive, for example, in that in that servoing example, the the drive doesn't recorrect its head position until the error signal is enough in one direction or the other to tell it that it's got to it's got to move the head back in, in, in into the center. So there's it's got to be a little bit off center before it knows to recenter. So so retrying, which is one of you know Spinrite's success strategies, often works. But 
but I guess the there's a, a it, it's a louder sort of distinctive sound which you will hear shortly after you power up the system where the drive is just kind of going to clank it to clank it to clank it mm, that clank sound it, yeah yeah it, i know that sound yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> it's distinctive if you've not heard it before yeah and you don't ever want to hear it yeah but yeah. Uh, your caller did hear it and and the problem is that drive has not declared itself online so if so the bios won't see it spin right won't see it nothing will see it it's literally it's not it it's ignoring the 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 cable connections to the outside world it's just trying to get itself going and then it would turn around and say okay what do you want me to do it's just not even there and so if you had if you can't get it not to do that that is if that's all it will do you even putting it in the refrigerator for a few hours and trying again um and you absolutely have to have the data I mean, because this is beyond spin right. It's like I said, it's not even, it's not online. Um, that's where you have to say, okay, and, you know, take it to a, a mm-hmm. professional data recovery service that, that takes the drive apart, right. literally. I mean, you're right. at that stage, and that's right. typically lots of money. Very good. Thanks for that clarification. And that's all I have. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> we have um, we have a bunch of great reactions to last week's. Um, vitamin- I'll tell you, I've been taking vitamin D every day since then. Well, great. I have. There's there's something funny around in the middle of them that you're going to get a kick okay. out of. But it's true. Um, but uh, so so today I wanted to let people know we will, you know, trust me, we'll be back to security big time next week but reactions were phenomenal from last week and so i wanted to share those uh with our listeners today and we do have a lot of security questions too so don't fear that do want to mention before we get to those security questions our friends at citrix the folks who do go to my pc the remote access program the remote access program you should all be using you know you're listening to a security show so it's reasonable to wonder how secure is go to my PC. Well, I'll tell you what, if you look at any other remote access solution, and there are lots of them out there, even just over the past year, I can't think of one except go to my PC that hasn't had some security flaw, some exploit. Go to my PC is as secure as you can get because it uses 128-bit SSL industry standard encryption to protect you. It's kind of like the best way to get a VPN. It's very easy. You Here's what happens. Now, you can do this right now. You can follow along with me if you want by just going to go to mypc.com slash security now and trying the free 30-day trial. So there's no cost or obligation to do this. Go to mypc.com slash security now. You'll set up an account. That takes a minute. Click the download button. And literally within two minutes, you'll have go to my PC installed on that computer. Now, that means you and you alone can access it. You know, use a good password, of course. Can I, I mean, I can't vouch for you if you use the word sex as a password. It's not going to work. I was, the other day, I was sitting down at Frederick, our office manager's computer, and uh, I wanted to log in. And they've, you know, they've all put passwords on their computer now. I tried to keep them from doing it because I wanted to be able to access their computers whenever I wanted. But they put passwords on and they were right to. And I said, what's, uh, what's her password? And they said, it's just, you know, put your fingers on the home row and go, home row and go ASDF. And then whatever the other side of the home row. I said, What? And not only that, I looked at the tip and it said, it said that in the tip, the password tip. So use a good, <laughs> I can't vouch for you. 
if you use ASDF as your password. But if you use a good password, you go to go to mypc.com, set up the account with a strong password, uh, and then download the software. Now you can access that computer wherever you go. As long as you can get online, Mac or PC, you just log on to go to mypc.com with that secure password, and there it is, your office desktop. You can you can see it. You can do anything you'd be doing if you were sitting in front of it, send and receive email just like you're at the office, but you're not. Uh, run any program, access any network resource, drag and drop files in case you need, oh, I need that PowerPoint slide or whatever. You can just drag it right across. Securely, absolutely securely. PC World has given it, once again, their world-class award for best remote access software. It's no surprise. This is the best stuff from the folks at Citrix. 24-7 support. I mean, in every respect, this stuff is great. If you've been looking for a great remote access solution that's easy to use, absolutely secure, the fastest in the business, the most affordable to, go to go to mypc.com slash security now. Sign up today for that free 30-day trial. I know you're going to love it. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank him so much for supporting the Security Now program. Steve, you ready for some questions? Yeah, absolutely. Questions and feedback and comments. So question number one, Anthony DeSante, listening in Pennsylvania, wrote to say, the occasional off-topic shows are great. For example, vitamin D. Hi, Steve. I'm a longtime listener of Security Now and a couple of Leo's other shows, too. This week, I actually listened to my podcast out of order, skipping Mac Break Weekly. What? Because I couldn't wait to hear about your vitamin D research. Thanks for sharing these kinds of non-security topics. I'm sure I speak for many other listeners when I say that after coming to know and love you as the security guy for so long, it's nice to see another side of you while learning something interesting at the same time. Speaking of off-topic stuff, is there anything exciting to report on the supercapacitor front? Oh, yes. That was an interesting subject we talked about some months ago. Maybe it's time you'd started a second podcast. Vitamin D and supercapacitors now. <laughs> Doesn't that roll off the tongue? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad. Like, I, and I've been taking my vitamin D. I got my D3. Yep. Popping um, that every and, day. And I, I just wanted to say, I mean, I was, I got, I, well, basically all the feedback that we received was about last week's episode. Not surprisingly, um, there were a couple grumpy people who said, Hey, if I wanted to have a health podcast, I'd, I'd go subscribe to one. I listen to security now for security, uh, information. So stay on topic. And it's like, okay, I mean, I really do understand that. I, and I want to reaffirm to everyone that this is a security podcast and that next week we'll be back to where we've always been for the last four years um, with, you know, more full strength security stuff than ever. Um, at the same time, my hope was that this would be interesting and useful. And from all the feedback that I got, I think we really scored there big time. Um, there's a, um, to, to the degree that, Anything else like this happens again, I think I've sort of established my interest as a health hobbyist among our listeners. I'll just make a reference in the errata time at the beginning of a podcast to go check out a certain page at GRC and leave it at that, trusting people to be able to do that if they choose to. So I, I, I wanted to acknowledge the, the, the couple people who said, hey, they wish you know that we'd stayed on security topic at the same time. The, the response was phenomenal from everyone who said, wow, I didn't know what you told us about. And that's really why I listen is to learn things. So um, I just want to acknowledge that. And relative to supercapacitors, 
Uh, we'll certainly keep our eye on those and let our listeners know. But nothing to report so far. Not at this point. Still a few months left in the year. They can still do it. <laughs> Eliezer Martinez in sunny and vitamin D supercharged Puerto Rico says, great vitamin D episode. As a medical technologist, we are now called clinical laboratory scientists. I rate your vitamin D episode A+, plus, aside from a couple of small errors. Technically, fungi does not equal plant. Uh, yeah, of course not. You handled your dissertation on the subject like a science major. It proves once again you really do your homework. I'm impressed. I do think, uh, or I don't think you're going to get any backlash for a non-security episode. Not everyone who listens to security now is a computer whiz, but everyone who listens is smart. I would agree with that. Uh, funny how I'm a lab professional with a computer hobby while you're a computer pro with a medical hobby. Yeah, there you go. Keep up the good work. Don't hesitate to bring to our attention anything that's really important. P.S. Is vitamin D intake via HTTPS a feature of CryptoLink? Haha, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so again, just uh, I wanted to share some of the feedback with our listeners um, sort of generically uh, and to thank everyone for, for having responded. Robert Wicks in Hotlanta notice, notes that vitamin D is especially important for black people. Steve, I want to let you know that your information on vitamin D was very valuable, even for non-Caucasians. I'm an African-American and was unaware of the incredible importance of this hormone. Although, because of the skin pigment, I'm at a greater risk of having an insufficient level of it than you are. I'm a Unix sysadmin. Sun is in short supply in the server room. I would expect that. Additionally, my wife recently had her thyroid removed and has had to take vitamin D and calcium supplements following her surgery. We're going to have our blood checked and speak to our family doctor about all of us taking vitamin D going forward. That's great, Robert. Thank you for what was, as you said, the most important podcast you've produced. It is. If, you know, if people are healthier because of it, that is pretty important. Well, yes. Um, again, you know, I've, we, we've never missed an episode and, and uh, so I wanted to, to, to the degree necessary to explain to people why I went off topic. It's because I really, I ended up as a result of, of studying this for several months thinking, wow, you know, this is just something, some information that I think everyone should have. And uh, I've, from the, from the feedback that we received, it was, you know, all like this in, in various ways. Um, um, I think it, the, 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 the factual basis for what we were able to explain uh, surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's just fascinating. Jim from Newfoundland, Canada, has a uh, comment about vitamin D and rickets. Hi, Steve. Right now, I'm listening to your latest Security Now podcast. Had to pause to send you this message when you mentioned the resurgence of rickets as a result of vitamin D deficiency. A few weeks ago, I was watching a YouTube video by Pat Condell, wherein he mentioned that more children were being born with rickets to Muslim women who don't get enough sun on their skin due to wearing the uh, full body covering called the burqa which only leaves the eyes and the hands uncovered. I've included links to the video and the article he references in support of that claim. I appreciate that you have deviated to a certain degree from the standard security format. I think it's good you've done so. Geeks can oftentimes have much more exposure to light from a computer monitor than from the sun, so your advice should be taken as a word to the wise. In order for us to keep the body's security defenses in good protective order, to guard against infection or breakdown, and help extend the mean time between failure of the bodily system, your advice on vitamin D should really not be considered a deviation from format at all, but merely sage advice 
I'm patching a known system vulnerability. I like that. <laughs> May I suggest you tack on a 15-second reminder to the end of each podcast just to remind us to get out in the sunlight for 15 or 30 minutes of exposure to natural light that we need to keep fit. Thanks to both you and Leo for valuing listeners enough to pass on this health concern. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to be bothering our listeners all the time about it. You know, Leo, you you do well at at tossing in reminders like that. So so I'll let you do that when you think it might be important. Um, I did run across um, a lot of comment in the in the research uh, specifically about Saudi Arabian women and the extra problem that they have because of the burqas that they're literally even when they're outside, not getting any incidental sunlight. And not surprisingly, I mean, we learned that that age decreases our skin's ability to make D, that sun is, you know, exposure to UVB from sunlight is essentially the only natural source aside from sun, some food sources, but that's only really fatty fish. Um, and that, um, and that lacking the sun and sufficient youthful skin, there's there's no source for D, yet it's, as we know, not a vitamin. It's a, an important hormone for our body. And so, you know, the, 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 the more, for example, computer guys are inside, uh, as some of our, our comments have, have written, um, receiving radiation from a monitor and not from the sun, uh, the less opportunity we have to make that. And it, it can get really critical. All right, we have time for one more. Normally we would do uh, 12 questions, but uh, these are all vitamin D questions, so we'll, we'll hold them for another time, another day. Um, or not. I think oh, we're oh, done oh. with vitamin D at this point. I don't want to... You, you, got, know, you got a lot of mail about this. It's obviously it was, an interesting a topic. It was a phenomenal people. response. I yeah. mean, hundreds of, of responses. And so, yes, I, I. but I think we've done it. People you know get the idea, folks. Yeah. more about it. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, that's a question from Phil in uh, Fillmore in Sydney. He's wondering about a book called The Vitamin D Cure. I was reading a blog post by a personal trainer named Tony Gentlecore. Good name for a personal trainer. (laughs) And he recommended everyone should read The Vitamin D Cure by James E. Dowd, MD. After last week's podcast, I figured this is right up your alley. Thanks for all the great work. Do you know that book? I do know it. I I own the book and it was the it was the first book I stumbled on. Um, And what happened was I was I was reading the book. There were lots of references in the literature to studies and it was, but for me, I really wanted to go to the source material, which right. is what our listeners heard from me last week. So I began, you know, digging into the actual research. Um, I ended up finding a book that I like a lot more than the vitamin D cure. It's called the vitamin D prescription. Um, I have a, a, a picture of it and a link to it on the grc.com slash health vitamin D page. And that's the book I would recommend. For example, if our listeners have family members or or relatives or something, and they that who might be interested in reading something, it is very well written, and basically it's a it exactly follows the literature. So it's sort of a a, a gentle, nice introduction to the topic, which which is a you know a a, a real world um, you know. Uh, uh, reflection of what all the research is. And I, th- I think that's my favorite book of all to recommend to people who I would want to turn on to this. Say it again. Say the name. It's called The Vitamin D Prescription. Okay. I'm sure that's in bookstores. There's been a lot of 
talk about this all around in general. People are well, very interested in this. I think I think we're probably at the tip of a so-called tipping point where a lot of it's beginning to get buzzed. It's in the news. Um, it's just it's so annoying that a blood test is really the only way to know where you stand. I mean, because, you know, people tend to shy away from medical procedures. You know, no one wants, I mean, you know, I'm doing it every week, forcing myself to, because I'm really wanting to experiment with, with, you know, sun production in my skin. And, you know, it's, it's not fun to be stuck with a needle and <laughs> no, it's just, it's too bad. There isn't a better way to know, but it's funny, you know, many people prefer not to know. And I completely understand that too. Cause you can sort of say, Oh, well, I'm probably getting enough. But, I, you know, I was hit with this low number. It's like, whoa, OK, um, I am a computer geek who's, you know, high, who goes from one cave to another and never gets much exposure to the sun. Yeah, me too. So, yeah. Too. Anyway, I'm glad that uh, that uh, we've sort of alerted our listeners to it. We will be back to security full speed ahead next week with a really neat episode about the inner workings of um what looked like a bulletproof e-voting machine and how it turned out not to be. Yeah. There's another, there's another one where I'm just, I e-voting. Oh, boy, it the does more I, just makes you nervous. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause you expect people like you and me who are just love technology uh, would be jumping on this bandwagon. And every technologist I talk to, the more you know about technology, the more you realize what a bad idea this is. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you've got hanging Chad and dimpled cards. So it's like that doesn't seem to be a, a good solution. Although, arguably, you know, the e-voting problem can be much more sweeping because in in the same way that that um, a, 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 anything in the physical world is pretty much restricted to just that one instance. If if a particular machine had wide, um, you know, really widespread adoption, and it turned out to be vulnerable and exploitable, as so far many of these have, you know, that's a that's a huge problem. Yeah. Well, Steve, great stuff as always. I look forward to next week. We'll be talking about voting machines. If you want to know more. You know where you know where to find them, grc.com. And, and, the, and the, the vitamin D stuff is at grc.com slash health. All the links are there. Uh, and we'll, that, that'll be it on that. Except I do want you to report back when you, find, when you get the final results. Absolutely. We'll I, do. I, I'd like to know how that's, how that's going. <laughs> uh, but next week, Voting Machines, grc.com for Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility for all those great freebies that Steve gives you, like Wismo and Decombobulator, Shields Up. We can't forget that. It's all there. 16 kilobit versions of the show. Transcriptions to GRC. That's short for GibsonResearchCorporation.com. Steve, we'll see you again next week. And as always, GRC.com slash feedback. Oh, yes. For all of your uh, ideas, questions, comments, suggestions for future shows and so forth. Very good. Talk to you then, Leo. Bye-bye. Security now.